0: Good morning, please be seated. In the case of Her Majesty the Queen against William Victor Schneider, for the Appellant, Her Majesty the Queen, Mary T. Ainsley, QC, and Liliane Y. Benturakis. For the Respondent, William Victor Schneider, Christopher Nolan, Thomas Arbogast, QC, and Catherine, Catherine Kirkpatrick. Ms. Ainsley.
1: Chief Justice, Justices, the Crown is before this Honourable Court today to ask that the Court of Appeals order for a new trial be overturned and the respondent's conviction for second-degree murder be reinstated. The respondent's brother, Warren, testified at the trial that he heard the respondent say in a conversation with his wife words to the effect of, I did it. that's not that's
2: not what he said that's not what he said he said it was his feeling that he was admitting to the missing Japanese students death he doesn't know what was said
1: yes certainly the interpretation of the evidence that was before the trial judge as to what Warren was saying the respondent said on the call is an issue and I, I do intend to get to that in 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 further detail okay well
2: let's not what misrepresent he's saying the is
1: that he, what he's saying is that he heard he heard his brother say words to the effect of i did it i killed her and if we can go to um w- well perhaps if i can just uh summarize a, a little bit further my overview and i will definitely go to the evidence uh of Uh, Warren, what he testified to, because, of course, that's the main issue in this case. This is a very fact-driven case, and the trial judge who heard Mr. Uh, Schneider testify, who heard Warren testify, saw the manner in which he was giving evidence, very um, emotional evidence and uh, important um, evidence vis-a-vis his own brother. Uh, held that it was capable of interpretation. Madam Justice uh, DeWitt Van Eusten, in dissent, correctly identified in the uh, Crown submission that the respondent's overheard statement was capable of interpretation, interpretation by the trier of fact and therefore properly before the jury. The appellant's position is that the majority was wrong in finding there was no logical relevance. The gist of the conversation that Warren heard did not need to be verbatim or a complete account of the one side of the conversation. The dissenting judge in paragraph 78 and further other reasons identified the context or circumstances that could inform Warren's evidence about what the respondent said to his wife during the telephone. This was a highly charged emotional time period between the two brothers.
3: Ms. Ainsley, isn't the starting point that uh, the paragraph 7 of the uh, trial judge's ruling, having uh, heard the evidence of the voir dire, said, or having heard, uh, participating in the voir dire, said, it's I did it or I killed her. So we start from the premise that it's one of the two, and then meaning is given to that. But it's not, I don't have any idea what was said. It was to the effect of the starting point is paragraph 7 with those two options, and then the specific meaning to be given to it is later elaborated upon.
1: Yes, and in fact, at trial, the the or actually was was dropped. Even the testimony between both the voir dire and the trial uh, uh, changed. But certainly, I would submit that uh, the crown would submit that it is the words that he said he heard, and his own frankness with respect to the fact that he could not recall the exact words that is, uh, does not mean that the evidence was not capable of interpretation.
2: On the basis of his feeling?
1: He, he, he heard words and he understood them to mean his brother was uh, accepting responsibility, admitting responsibility for the, for the offense. Now again, as noted by the dissent, This is the larger, this is the the context, there's a larger context in which those words were said.
2: Well, before we get to the context, do you see a distinction between his account of what was said and a situation where a witness says, I don't recall what was said in, I don't recall what was said exactly, but I do recall the substance of those words right as distinct from i don't recall what was said but my feeling about those words were in fo- as follows is that is that are these distinct cases or are these the same kinds of cases
1: well he is uh, uh, he is I, he is identifying words were spoken and he's he says he says a number of things he said he heard he was there for the entire conversation, but did not remember it all. He said, uh, he said that he um, uh, recalled uh, the first part very clearly, that the telephone call was relating to Ms. Kagawa's, uh, the missing student. And then he heard, in the context of what he was being asked about at this trial, then he heard one other statement, and it was, I did it, I killed her. And then he's questioned further as to whether he could recall the exact words. And he frankly acknowledged he could not. So this is an individual who's testifying with familiarity with the speaker, both as a, a family member and both because they have been together in this period of time, and he has been making other statements. Recall that they have the conversation the night before, where um, he uh, uh, he's asked about the respondent is asked about the RCMP missing person bulletin. He told his brother it was true. He told his brother he knew Ms. Kogawa had been with her, and that on their last date, they had taken medication. After the respondent said these things, he he appeared to his brother to be remorsefully sad, glad to get it off his chest. The next morning, the respondent told his brother he wanted to commit suicide. He told his brother where the body was located at the construction site. He said it was in a suitcase by necessary implication. She's obviously deceased. He never said it was an accident. He never said he did not know how he died. The brother heard his, his, the respondent make statements, all to do with his involvement in the death of Ms. Kagawa. Then he hears his brother make a statement to his wife on the phone, which again was a statement regarding responsibility for the death of miss kagawa through the words and conduct of the respondent that day observed by the brother and testified at trial to, to which he testified at trial the respondent was demonstrating culpability for a wrongful act that caused the missing woman's death death the crown argued at trial and the jury could readily infer That the respondent was reluctant to fully explain his actions to his brother he didn't want to explain them to his father or his wife necessarily directly but he was implicitly willing to take responsibility for them so this is the collective context in which the jury is given statements made by the respondent it's not simply a stranger It's not simply a police officer or a sheriff in a van or bail supervisor. It's not a a member of authority overhearing somebody who's in their custody. It's somebody who's intimately familiar and in an incredibly intense um, experience with the brother, including him wanting him to be there while he tried to kill himself. And then he hears a statement on the phone when he's speaking to the wife. I did it. I killed her. He made this phone call minutes after an unsuccessful suicide attempt and having revealed the knowledge of where the body lay. He may not have been able to provide the exact, exact words spoken, but he was able to provide reliable evidence of the essence of the words. The no, gist no, of no, he,
2: no, he wasn't. He, he, was, he was able to say that his feeling was that he's responsible that 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 his brother's saying that he's responsible for her death
1: he's describing and perhaps um, why don't we go uh, at this stage we can go to uh two uh in the condensed book i've exerted uh warren schneider's evidence if i could start at tab seven these are photographs of the two This this gives a a, a real picture of this snapshot of this intense circumstance that was happening that day, and it's a reminder that the trial judge heard this evidence and saw Warren testify. She felt it was capable of interpretation by the trier of fact. She being a trier of fact, she saw the manner in which the evidence was delivered whether there was uh, um demeanor or uh uncertainty or clarity or not with respect to how witnesses testify having seen having seen warren testify she concluded his evidence was capable of interpretation
2: sorry so, how do the photographs help us understand the meaning of the statement in the middle of the phone call
1: try, it's trying to bring home that with respect to the witness the dynamic of what was occurring during that whole time they were together including what the conversation with that was overheard with the wife including it is that it was a very emotionally charged uh moment and in fact the brother was testifying about what having heard what he knew regarding Um, Mr. the respondent's uh, knowledge of the offence. So it's it's in this larger piece that he then hears the accused make this statement in a conversation, his last conversation with his wife, Uh, one would assume because he's hoping, the respondent is hoping to kill himself again, immediately following it. So this provides in the Crown submission just some context and and a reminder as well that the trial judge Heard this witness, and would be able to understand the import of his evidence. So, at Tab uh, Nine of the condensed book, is where we have um, uh, the transcript excerpts and from the voir dire starting at page one thirty-five of the appellant's record. At line eighteen, is where there's first uh, dis- first questioning regarding the conversation uh, that he overheard. At line 20. The uh, the Warren says that the respondent asks or says starts the conversation by saying, Did you see the news of the missing Japanese student? Yes. Answer. And then he said, I did it. Question. And did he say anything else? I killed her. Okay, now what was the length of this call? Several minutes. Were you present for the entire call? I was near. Yes. And then at line 35. 10 feet at line 39. I could only hear one side of the conversation, but seemingly a two way conversation. But I would think he was speaking more than she was. What tone of voice did he use when he said, I did it, I killed her? And then he gives an answer with respect to the uh, respondent's voice possibly being impacted by uh, uh, opiates. And then the next page, line 12. Okay, and when he said, I did it, or I killed her, were those statements either statements or questions? Answer statements. Question. Okay, now can you remember anything else that was said in the conversation? Answer no. So it's important, I would su- suggest here, that he's, he's overhearing the conversation, and he is saying what he remembers about what he's being questioned about. He's being questioned about the, the, the what he overheard regarding the respondent's statements about Ms. Kagawa. So he's, this is what he remembers as being relevant to the topic that he's being questioned on. And then at line 34 on, on page 136 still, question, did you leave for any parts of the conversation? Answer, no, question, and were you listening to it? Answer, I could hear it, I was not eavesdropping. And then at page 138, is where there's cross-examination starting at line 37 and i'm going to suggest you also don't you that to you also don't know what exact words were spoken by him you don't recall that do you answer not the full conversation no i'm sorry answer not the full conversation well sir you don't even know whether he said i did it and there's further questioning at line at page 140 line 38 now that's what you said that day. What did what did you really hear him say? Answer, well, he said that, did you hear the news or whatever on the missing Japanese student? And the conversation went on for apparently 13 minutes. But I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't eavesdropping, but he said he did it. Okay, we'll go on, that he killed her. And then later he says um, at page 141, line 29, Again, being questioned about his testimony at the preliminary inquiry, answer, I guess I'll have to go back to the page. That's exactly, I mean, that's what I said there. I did it, or I killed her, but meaning that he's responsible for his death, for her death. So this is, he's being reminded of testimony that he gave at the preliminary inquiry. Later, um, later, as uh, Justice Brown has uh, uh, already noted, at page 143, line 36 is where he's asked, so you don't know the exact words he said, answer, not word for word, but the message that I got That I got from that was, question, you're feeling about it, answer, yes. And then um, at line, uh, page 144, line 34, well, it is the topic, and we're talking about it. So, I mean, we're talking about a missing Japanese student in a suitcase, drugged. So we were talking about him, in a sense, being responsible for her death. And then at page 145 is the, um, at line 32, is your feeling about the impression you got. Isn't that really it? Yes. So to the extent that evidence is, um, uh, Impacted by cross-examination from a conflicted, as the Crown argued, conflicted witness giving incriminatory evidence. Yes, there is some, some, some uh, further clarification, but he is hearing words, not the exact words, and he's being honest about that then at tab 10 is where we get to the trial evidence and the comparison is is interesting because at this stage now at this the judge has heard and made an assessment of logical relevance now this is what the jury hears and it is the crown submission that this is what this case ought to be decided on which is what did the jury hear and how were they instructed regarding it. It's very um, central to the dissenting reasons uh, which the Crown asked this course to endorse, that there was such a strong caution and thorough instructions given to the jury so that they had the tools with which to assess this evidence. They saw him testify. They would have sensed whether he was conflicted or not. They would have sensed whether he was backing off incriminatory portions or not. This is, that they were there and th- we were not. So they saw him- May I interrupt testimony? you there, though?
4: The, the, the caution that was provided by the trial judge was, as you say, uh, quite strong, quite proper, very well done. But if the evidence shouldn't have been admitted at all, what is the relevance to the legal determination about admissibility that there wasn't a, a, a well-done caution?
1: Well, certainly, and I've included in the um, Crown's factum that it's, it's essentially akin almost to a curative proviso argument, which is if the caution is such that the, jur- the evidence could never have been misused, and if the concern about admitting it was that it could be misused? Then, in fact, they're all they're they're essentially uh, related, which is ultimately, in the end, there's no uh, prejudice by the admission of the evidence. So, and there's a, there are, I've included uh, cases in which um, in which the caution essentially was a a cure to any concern with respect to the admissibility.
5: Yeah. I'm not sure it's quite as. Uh... I'd say, um, free form as that. It seems to me that there's a logical sequence to the questions that need to be answered. And sometimes, points are relevant to more than one step in the sequence. But that doesn't mean they're, they're less distinct. The first one is, is the evidence relevant? Second, is its probative value uh, Overborne by its prejudicial effect, such that notwithstanding the fact that it's relevant, it should be excluded. And then the third step in the sequence, it seems to me, was is the jury instruction effective to maintain a proper balance between uh, probative value and prejudicial effect so that uh, it's, it's really properly uh, assessed by the jury? And I'm not sure that a good instruction at the end of the sequence allows you to skip uh, steps one and two.
1: The, um, the jury instruction is, part, is, is really a part of these steps. So uh, for example, Justice Giroux says in paragraph 21 of her ruling, um, the probative value of the evidence outweighs the prejudicial effect that it might be used improperly. The prejudicial effect can be ameliorated by a strong caution to the jury about what use can be made of the evidence. So, so again, when one talks about prejudices, is, it, is the evidence going to be misused? How will it be used? And her assessment of to this balancing exercise is that in this case, there is uh, adequate um, Protection from uh, instruction, and uh, I would submit as I submit as well that this again it's 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 not in dispute that this this is something to which a trial judge uh, is given great uh, deference to the trial judge's assessment as to this balancing of probative value of prejudicial effect. And certainly Justice DeWitt makes that clear in her reasons that that this is something to which deference is accorded because the importance of the role of the trial judge obviously is as gatekeeper, but part of that job is to assume when the gate is open and the jury is now there, what are they doing with the evidence that they've heard? And in this case, we have evidence that is capable of interpretation. The trial judge found it. Justice DeWitt Van Noosen, in dissent, certainly accepted it. In fact, defense counsel must have considered it to be capable of interpretation until the very day that Mr. Warren Schneider was going to testify, because he never raised any form of pretrial objection to it, despite the evidence being led at the preliminary inquiry. And he certainly raised objections to. Other evidence that the crown was tendering. So, if we have evidence that is capable of interpretation, then the next question is: Well, is the jury being properly uh, guided with respect to its use? And this role, these different roles—the judge as gatekeeper and the jury as fact finder—very much inform the, the manner in which the law is developed in this regard. That. And i've set out a number of uh quotations in the factum with respect to the fact that juries can be trusted to do their job with proper guidance and proper tools and in this case they were given it and furthermore uh, the instructions um, are also to be considered that this jury was given in light of the submissions of counsel and what the counsel said with respect to this evidence so ultimately in the end and this in the response submission in the appellant in the crown submission is important that this court is dealing with the record as a whole with respect to this evidence and in the end the 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 concerns of the majority are just not borne out in the crown submission now to return to the um the tab 10 which is the actual trial evidence and This is the condensed book of the appellant at tab 10, page 170, again at line 17. Warren is saying that he is approximately 10 feet away within earshot. He was close enough to hear what he said. Answer, yes. And then the witness, Warren, recognizes, well, I only heard the one-way conversation. At line 37, what did you hear your brother say? Did you hear the news about the missing Japanese student? What else did he say? Line 41, more was said. But the conversation goes for up to 13 minutes. Now halfway through the conversation was when was he said he did it, he killed her. Well, I did it, I killed her. And that's his answer. And then at the top of page 171, and at this point, I want to be clear with respect to that, the Crown asks, can you say whether they were his exact words or not? No. Are you able to say that that was the gist of the conversation? Answer, perhaps. Question, I'm sorry? Perhaps. And he's asked, what do you mean by perhaps? I only heard one side of the conversation. Okay, I'll rephrase that. That was the gist of the conversation you heard from your brother. Yes. Can you remember anything else of know what was said at the time no so he's being asked can you remember anything else implicitly about what was said about the missing japanese student and then at uh, page 184 of the appellant's record further under this same tab i have at line 43 is a question when you left your brother and this is a very traumatic time for you i'm guessing answer yes so again emphasizing the um the uh, seriousness of the interaction that he's having with his brother and the degree to which he's in a position to say what he heard his brother saying
2: um, i wonder if you could make that the basis for that link between the trauma and his basis for understanding what he's hearing a little more explicit for me I'm, I'm still stuck on I mean I assume the trauma point is the same point that you wanted to make in, in referring us to the photographs and I'm still struggling to understand how those photographs help us interpret a later statement where we don't know exactly what was said in the middle of a telephone conversation that he didn't listen in on um, so so can you can you take me back is there a photo in particular i need to look at is there how does the trauma relate
1: and perhaps i'm not clear about the 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 photos are are really included just to give um some context to these are the two brothers and this is this is what they are involved in this very intense less than 24 hour period right and and the reason that matters is because he hears his brother and he's in a position to understand what his brother is saying he's in a position to hear the tone and this was certainly one of the points in the ferris decision that justice de witt van Eusten, uh, distinguished was was noting that in that case one of the concerns was that nobody could give any meaning because it was just an overheard statement by a police officer of somebody he doesn't know he has no familiarity with it was incapable of being interpreted as an admission so in this case we have an individual who is extremely well suited extremely well suited to give evidence because he has been hearing statements from his brother who he knows over this period of time And then he hears another one during the phone conversation the phone conversation started with the fact that he 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 mentions to his wife about the missing japanese student and then the other thing that warren testifies he remembers is that he heard his brother say i i did it i killed her so i just I, i see my time is almost up i've I have directed the court to uh, the the condensed book and the references there in support of the uh, crown submission that these these words were capable of interpretation because this was not a stranger. This was part of an ongoing contextual uh, interaction between two brothers as very thoroughly set out by Justice DeWitt Van Oosten in her uh, dissenting reasons. The other tab that I have in, uh, one of the other tabs in the condensed books does have the jury charge. And I would ask that this court give great uh, weight to the fact that in, in that jury charge, the jury were given the proper tools to assess this statement, a statement that was provided from someone with intimate knowledge of both the speaker and the circumstances.
0: Thank you very much. Mr. Nolan.
6: Uh, Chief Justice, Justices, uh, uh, can you hear me?
0: You too. Go ahead.
6: Thank you. Uh, The position of the uh, respondent is that uh, this honorable court um, can and should dismiss should dismiss this appeal for any for any of the following uh, reasons. Uh, the majority de- first the majority decision correctly decided that whatever uh, the witness uh, W S overheard uh, the accused say was inadmissible because it was logically uh, irrelevant. Uh, the second reason being that whatever the witness W S overheard was also inadmissible because it was legally irrelevant. Uh, in the sense that its potential prejudicial effect far outweighed its probative value. Um, A third point uh, is that evidence from the witness, WS, as to the gist of what he overheard was inadmissible opinion evidence. And uh, fourthly, uh, the trial judge inadequately responded to a jury question about the difference between murder and manslaughter. Now, with the time available this morning, we the respondent we rely upon our factum in relation to that fourth uh, point I just made about uh, the jury question Uh, subject of course to any questions from this court Uh, I would in terms of my colleague and I's division of uh, labor I propose to begin by summarizing why the majority decision below correctly concluded uh, that whatever the witness ws uh, overheard was logically and legally irrelevant On the third point that I'd mentioned, uh, my colleague Mr. Arbogast, he will outline why the witness W.S. should not have been permitted to introduce to the jury his opinion about what he overheard and the associated uh, issue around the jury instruction. In essence, I would like to explain why the majority decision below correctly followed and applied the majority decision in Ferris, which this court upheld, and my colleague Mr. Arbogast will explain why the evidence that the majority decision ruled inadmissible was inadmissible for reasons independent of Ferris and the Ferris line of cases. So I, I really can I, just, can uh, I just-
2: Can I just interrupt you just so I understand your, your four points, um, Mr. Nolan, that y- y- your, um, you'd accept the view that, that the majority decided the matter just on logical relevance that they didn't, yes, I, they didn't say anything to us about legal, I mean, you can draw inferences to, to what they might have thought about the speculative character of the evidence or the proper, properly prejudicial effect it might have if it were admitted, but strictly speaking, they only decided it on logical, reven, re, re, logical relevance. Is that that's correct? I,
6: I agree with that entirely, Justice Kessier. Um, my point simply being is that uh, it's 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 another it's another reason that this court um, could could dismiss the appeal is is my submission that they that uh, on on the issue of uh, legal relevance but no the answer to your question is yes so so what I'd like to say then in terms of just briefly on the point of logical irrelevance, um, is that that is exactly what Justice, Mr. Justice Gopal in British Columbia um, disposed of the, the appeal on that issue alone. Um, his view was that uh, whatever the witness Warren Schneider had overheard was not logically relevant. It had zero probative value, and it was therefore inadmissible. And that's precisely where he parted company with uh, Justice DeWitt Van uh, how, how,
5: how do you square this with the, the low threshold for relevance that is, was set out in ERP
6: uh, okay, then I will go to that. Um, how, I, how I respond to that, uh, Justice Rowe, is that uh, I believe that in this case in particular, I don't know about others, uh, this, uh, this, in a sense, almost a doctrine that kind of seemed to have come up or a threshold of some evidence that came up, in, and, 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 and absolutely it came up in ARP. Um, it's, it's what I might submit is the, the bare minimum for the uh, trial judge to consider actually putting the uh, putting say in this case the the, the overheard utterances to, to the jury um, what's missing in this case and and it's what i've been trying it's, it's what the respondents factum is trying to articulate by by drawing this distinction between some evidence and, and a balance and a, and a say a standard of proof of balanced probabilities it is addressed uh, kind of directly head-on in a sense in in at least two cases and i think because of because in response to your question if if i may draw this court's attention to to a paragraph to a a paragraph from the case evans uh 1993 from this court um i'd refer to it in the respondents factum a different paragraph but i think to answer this question very head-on it's important for me to read out one paragraph which is paragraph 36 of the evans case um, to answer this question. And, and so I'll read now from Justice Sipinka uh, directly, paragraph 36. If there is some evidence to permit the issue to be submitted to the trier of fact, the matter must be considered in two stages. First, a preliminary determination must be made as to whether on the basis of evidence admissible against the accused, the Crown has established on a balance of probabilities that the statement is that of the accused period. So he goes on to then say you can now go past the gatekeeper, and Evans was a case about the authenticity uh, of a statement. But in 2008, uh, Justice Rothstein quoted those those words from Justice Sopinka that I just read out, uh, again, entirely with approval, categorically with approval, and actually made the additional comment. This is in a case uh, from 2008 called RVHL. Um, And what he said at paragraph 80 was that that same civil standard on these preliminary questions about the the balance, civil standard of a balance of probabilities, he said that they applied to um, preconditions of admissibility of various types of evidence, such as hearsay, and he actually mentioned similar fact, and he cited ARP, among other cases. Um, in my, f- in, in the respondents' factum, we developed that point to, to make the point that, that it sh- it also applies to cases such as uh, Mr. Big cases, where the uh, where the reliability of uh, admissions to Mr. Big officers are presumptively presumptively uh, unreliable, if you want to put it that way. Well,
7: isn't isn't that the distinction, though? <clears throat> we're not talking about we're if we're talking here about Evans and a party admission. There's no, some, nothing that says they're presumptively inadmissible. You're giving, us, you're giving us cases that deal with evidence that this court has held is presumptively inadmissible. Here we're starting with something that would be presumptively admissible. And the logical relevance of a party admission can hardly be doubted. So really it seems to me that the relevance point, and this is the point Justice Rowe I think was getting at, is almost a given in a case where you have a party admission, you're not into what we call the traditional hearsay evidence rules. You don't have to prove the principled approach to let it in for its truth, you have a party admission. Now, whether or not it should be excluded as Justice Sapinka determined in Ferris is another story. But it seems to me that we're talking apples and oranges. Even in ARP, which was similar fact evidence that is presumptively inadmissible.
6: Justice Smoldaver, if if I may, with with great respect, uh, in the Mr. Big context, that's a if if I understand you correctly, that's a party admission. A Mr. Big target is is the accused, and he or she is making an admission, and. The concern if if i may um in in heart was that the circumstances around mr Big admissions generally uh are have are of dubious reliability which is why they're considered presumptively reliable presumptively unreliable um the general submission and let's stop let's stop
7: there for a second why would the brother of the accused here why would we start off they had apparently a, a close Caring relationship. They've been dealing with this issue for several days one They're they're together when one tries to commit suicide. They obviously care very much for each other Why would one presume that the brother would give evidence that would on its face be harmful? to his brother uh, in these circumstances it doesn't make any sense and I think that's what your friend was getting at when she tried to show us the pictures and the care that these brothers had for each other it, you don't start off and saying, well he had a motive to implicate his brother in a crime that he didn't commit
6: no I I agree with that I agree with that last point uh, Justice Moldaver uh, my submission isn't—it doesn't touch on the issue whether they had a motive. But in fact, what the the general logic—well, that's sorry that, to
7: interrupt but again, but that's what Mr. Biggs all all about. The concern is that the police are giving this person benefits and so on and so forth, and 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 sort of playing into the fact that the ultimate accused. the, the The biggest thing in his or her life is let me join the gang, I want to join the gang and we're going to give you all kinds of sweeteners and so on. Mm. You start off with a major concern about reliability when in fact you are inducing the person to, by benefits. I don't
6: disagree with that. Uh, But that's very different than this. What's, what's similar, if, if I may, uh, if, what, what the respondent is submitting generally is similar, and, and because I can bring in the KGB as well, right? In KGB, we have the same, have the same concern about a young person who's, again, a, uh, the accused, who's made an admission and has retracted it. So we have a different context from, uh, completely from Mr. Big, but we still now have the same rule. The respondent submission generally about these circumstances, it, it, it has to do with the reliability of these statements. It doesn't have to do with motive. There may be one reason or another why a statement might be have reliability problems around its circumstances. That's why KGB is different than uh, than Mr. Big uh, and different than Evans, et cetera. But in this case, what we have is on the, on the facts that we have these uttered, we have these fragmented utterances, or I believe what one case calls severed utterances. And so the argument is, is that re, whether it's Mr. Big or KGB or Evans, um, when, when the Crown is attempting to submit some piece of evidence of dubious reliability, and in this case, inherently dubious, because there is no, uh, there is no surrounding uh, words, it's, a, it's an overheard, one-sided conversation, it's inherently, it has inherent reliability problems. And this general submission is, and that's why I drew from Evans and then the HL case, is that when you when the crown is seeking to tender a piece of evidence of that of that nature for for its truth, as an admission, or in some cases a confession in which the in which the preliminary standard is a criminal standard, um, and again, that's a reliability concern. um the entire volunt- the, the whole voir dire process around voluntariness of a confession is the exact same logic i I respectfully submit. Uh, the common law says we have a concern about uh, involuntary confessions so we're going to have a voir dire about them and the standard of proof of
8: mr narlin in paragraph 205 the majority says that uh, what is missing in this case and in ferris is uh, any micro context so uh, i'm trying to find in everything which has been written on the law of evidence uh, where we have to make a distinction between macro context and micro context in order to make a determination of relevance? And is support in the law of evidence for such a distinction? Because in saying that, the majority seems to acknowledge that there was a macro context. But why should we have that distinction between macro and micro context to determine if something is relevant?
6: Yes. Um well, because I think when, if, if we we're to speak generally about macro and micro context, I, 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 might, ag- I might agree, uh, Justice Coté, that uh, that uh, it's hard to draw a line and uh, certainly hard to draw a bright line in that respect. But I think when it comes to the uniqueness or the distinctness of, of, uh, of statements in particular, as a piece of evidence, is certainly one that the Crown is presenting to the, to, wishes to present to the jury as, as an admission, which um, which is, most likely dispositive, when it comes to statements, I, I, I'm submitting that they're, 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 they're a special animal in, in the sense that, especially when you have a fragment, which I believe is what the concern was in, in the Ferris case, you've got these, you've got these fragments or severed, severed words out of, you know, what, what, what Justice, Mr. Justice Gopal focused in on, and as did Justice Conrad and Ferris, was the fact that what the witness is being asked is to kind of interpolate, okay, or interpret the entire sentence when they don't know what that sentence is. And that's, that's really how, that's, that's the narrow sense in which Mr. Justice Gopal treats micro-context. So I think what I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say is that perhaps more generally speaking, in terms of how the common law is in, in Canada, that there's maybe no bright line between macro and micro-context. In this kind of linguistic context, if you want to... I'd, I'd go context, further
5: than to say there's no bright line. I've never heard of it. I, this seems like something they cooked up, which is really, I think, what's behind Justice Cote's comment.
6: Well, uh, Justice Rowe, uh, I, I'm, I'm reluctant. To, I'm, I'm most reluctant to say it's been cooked up. It's, uh, it's, in my respectful submission, it's a valid distinction on on the specifics of this type of and this types of fact pattern, where what we have is not. You know, uh, we don't have a kind of a piece of circumstantial evidence in this case. What we have is an utterance for which, um, which maybe I should come to this point, um, which for which the true or definitive meaning cannot be ascertained. Um, much is much is uh, made by my learned friend about you know, and 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 uh, in the dissenting justice and by and by the trial judge around this standard about something being capable of interpretation, and the respondent's submission throughout has been that a careful read of Ferris, of Justice Conrad's decision of Ferris, shows that what she's really getting at is she's getting at is, is the utterances, are they capable of the, is the witness capable of interpreting the true meaning? Or there's another expression she uses that's capable of the definitive meaning. And to get to that involves speculation. And that's because there is no micro-context. Uh, all that Justice Gopal means by the micro-context, I think he's quite clear about it, is that th- the, the witness WS did not hear, and admittedly so, any of the words that might, pre- might have preceded I did it, if that's even what he overheard, or any of the words that might have uh, anteceded it. Uh, so the way, the way I
2: read these kind of micro-macro-context ma- references is, is reflective of a different... field of vision when it comes to what is is relevant context in trying to give meaning to the statement. And so uh, the dissenting justice at the Court of Appeal looked further afield like the Crown does, right? Look at the photos, look at the trauma, look at this, look at that, that occurred in the previous few hours. Whereas um, the majority was concerned more with the circumstances of the call itself and and did not think that looking further was helpful. I, that's how I understood it. And is, is that a fair kind of way of looking at it?
6: Yes, I, I, I agree with that. I think one of the things I'm trying to say is one doesn't... Justice Gopal could have made his exact same point as he, as he did without using the word micro-context. In fact, he also used the word macro-context. And... Justice Justice Van Oosten had used the word kind of like I think the greater context so uh, so I don't think he had done anything um, uh, you know untoward or novel in this he's just he's just he, like I say he's zoned in on on a couple of um, key 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 parts of 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 the evidence in question being antecedent and, and the precedent and, and you know we just his Justice Gopal's reasoning in my mind is to something to the effect that it's very plausible that, uh, that the accused could have been saying on the phone, um, they are saying, I did it. You know, He's been talking to his brother about it. Um, they are saying, I did it, but I didn't. Um, they're saying that I killed her, but I didn't. And, and we have to remember that uh, the witness WS still actually can't be sure about that. So, so um, the other point that I was gonna make on that, and then, and then I'll quickly leave, uh, leave off for my, for my colleague, is that the other thing you can't do with, if, if we're gonna use the word, the greater context, for example, as, as, you, as you suggested, uh, as, as Justice DeWitt Van Osten suggested, is that that greater context cannot be built on inadmissible opinion evidence. So that's a real problem in this case, is that, is that part of what's being treated as the macro, kind of greater or macro context is actually inadmissible evidence that that's actually the issue that's that's and that and justice Mr. Justice Gopal zoned in on that in the later part of his judgment um uh so he because he, he he drew he, he quoted he quoted from the um uh, the j- j- jury instructions having to do with the admissibility of the opinion evidence and then he followed that along and, and basically said you cannot build the, ma- the macro context based on that so so that's that's my submissions on that because what I, I'd like to leave my colleague Mr. Arbogast some time to speak to the opinion, opinion uh, aspect and the, and the jury instructions. But my only, my only submission then before I leave off on that was simply that should this court actually find that the, the evidence in question was logically uh, relevant, then it's the respondent's position, as, as I've iterated already, that it was definitely legally irrelevant. Um, the prejudicial effect of it uh, far outweighed its probative value it's not like a piece of circumstantial evidence uh justice conrad had made that point in ferris um, the jury was being asked by the crown to treat these fragments um, as an admission which would realistically be dispositive of the case and their inclination which was the concern of justice conrad and mr justice Gopal, their inclination would be to find that the accused uh was guilty based on guesswork or speculation um if I am correct, this is the, this is the general logic on which uh, Justice Sipinka up, upheld Ferris. Um, subject, to any, subject to any questions in that respect, I, I would, I would uh, turn it over to my colleague, Mr. Arbogast. Thank you. Ariane, huh? I have
8: a question for you, if you permit no. me, Chief Justice. Uh, about the prejudice, what um, importance should we give, if any, uh, to the fact that uh, other inculpatory statements Um, raising similar prejudice uh, have been uh, properly admitted in this case. Like, and I mean the statements to the police, uh, the statement to the father. So is there uh, any weight to be given to that when we analyze the second uh, branch of the ferry uh, test?
6: If if I understand your uh, question correctly, uh, Justice Cote, I think my answer is no. I just want to make sure I understand your question. The way that I would put it is is this, that... uh, the prejudice, independently, like in this, with this particular evidence, is, is, is the type of prejudice, kind of in, in terms of uh, uh, distracting di- that kind of di- both distra- uh, reasoning and 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 the kind of moral prejudice that gets discussed in the case of Andy. This this uh, this kind of inclination. I mean, the way that Justice Goldstein, Justice DeWitt explain it is this idea of kind of coming backwards, like saying, well, you know, maybe because there's some there's already some incriminatory evidence in the case. Maybe that maybe that helps. Maybe that helps give give in, helps Warren interpret or le- leads Warren to interpret the whatever he overheard as an admission, and, th- and that's the concern that the jury would do the same thing. So I don't know that the other the other statements made by the accused would have any bearing on, on like on if I understand correctly on the legality of that point. I think it's just, I think it's an independent concern. If I can put it out.
8: Thank you. You understood my question properly.
6: Okay. Okay. Thank
0: you, Mr. Thank you. Nolan. Mr. Arbogast.
9: Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. The conundrum in the Crown's case here is that on one hand, the Crown is trying to impute that there were exact words, but there were no exact words here. And the issue I say is that um, the evidence from this witness was neither gist nor impression in the legal sense, it was an opinion And the idea that it was an admission was essentially manufactured. And I'd like to pick up on a point that Justice Brown brought up about this idea of the concept of gist and impression in a broader sense. And it appears that that idea really applies to cases where there were recollection or a lack of recollection, but that something was actually heard in various cases and in this case it's really important to note that the the concept that there were exact words never actually occurred and so there are three pillars to this argument the first one is that it's important to recognize that there were no actual words heard the witness resiled from making that from giving that evidence. And yet what we have here, and this is point number two, the actual words were imputed by the trial judge that could be interpreted by the trier of fact. The third point is that it appears that the concept that it was an opinion was actually troubling the trial judge and the court of appeal picked up on this. And to the earlier point that this case was about logical relevance in the court of appeal, that is correct, but the Court of Appeal also had some concerns. This is the majority of the Court of Appeal about the idea that an opinion was being brought into this case in terms of the, the jury instructions and why was that there? And so, um, isn't
3: paragraph sixteen of the oral ruling on the voir dire a finding though that it was one of the two? Isn't that's the way I read it? It was one of the, t- the two statements. It wasn't. Um, I don't remember what was said, the gist was of these two statements. It was rather, um, it was one of these two statements. Um, I don't know the exact words, the gist was as follows.
9: Yes, and, and, and I say that's where the problems began in terms of what, how can it be imputed that, that those were the exact words when those words were actually resiled from. And those words were then sort of created by this idea that yes, it was stated by this witness in direct evidence. And this is frankly a case that shows that cross-examination is extremely important because cross-examination brought the evidence back to some state where the witness actually stated, no, I cannot remember the exact words. And so how can we then impute that he stated that exa- those exact words or the gist of those words when it wasn't like he, rem- he stated, oh, I, I probably heard something like that, but I can't recall now. He had a very clear recollection of what happened in the, um, that situation where he overheard the phone call. And so what I say, and uh, I'd like to take this to a point that Justice Rowe brought up about the three steps of relevance, Um, probative versus prejudicial value, and then the instruction, I say there's actually a predicate step with certain types of evidence that the court has to evaluate. And that predicate step is, does the evidence in question reach a threshold over which then we engage in a relevance analysis? And that is the issue of opinion. When you have evidence that has come out as such as in this case, It and it appears to be an opinion as opposed to based in actual evidence, that's something that's clearly inadmissible in law. And that goes to an issue that the Court of Appeal actually addressed in the reasons. And in the reasons at paragraph 180, and this is at page 61 of the appellant's um, uh, record, um, at paragraph 80, Justice uh, Gopel actually speaks about this. He says that the problem that arises from not knowing the exact words is highlighted by the jury charge in this regard. The judge told the jury, and then I'll go down to um, sub 86. Another witness's opinion as to what Mr. Schneider meant by his words is irrelevant to the question of what he meant. It It is your job, and your job alone to decide the meaning of Mr. Schneider's words if you said, if you find he said them. There can be no finding that Mr. Schneider said those words on the basis of the evidence. That was not up for debate here. This wasn't a case where you had an issue relating to credibility, where it was argued that, well, maybe he said them and the other side said he didn't say them. He but, clearly but resiled you- and ret-
4: Can I bring you, if you you look at the the page 887 and the transcript, and I think I know the part that you're you're talking about here, where in cross-examination, there's a question, what did he actually say, though, the exact words, yes. I don't know the exact words, but that was the conversation. So is that what you're relying upon to say that there was no... Um, no acknowledgement of the exact words, because if it is, I guess what I'm going to ask you is, is is this paragraph really saying that, or is it this answer saying, as between the two formulations that I've already testified to, the uh, I did it or I killed her, I can't recall the exact words between those two formulations, or I can't recall the exact words in an overall sense, even as to whether he said, I did it or I killed her?
9: I say it's the latter, Justice Martin, in terms of the, the and it came out a number of times in the evidence. And it's in our, for instance, in the factum, um, the respondents' factum at paragraphs 24 and 25, where even on the, um, the Crown's evidence and then in the defense evidence in a number of areas, um, the witness W.S. states, and acknowledges that he cannot um, remember any exact wording, and so it didn't. It wasn't a matter of um, I did it or I killed her. It was all of the wording together. There was no specificity in those wordings, and that is why I say that it did not meet the predicate step that this was an opinion.
2: So, when you talk about the Thank opinion, um, I'm I'm kind of looking. I guess pages one forty-four, one forty-five, of the transcript. So, question. Or answer, word for word, I don't know the exact words. Question, well, you don't know the words at all, do you? Answer, word for word, no. Question, well, when you say word for word, what do you mean? So are we getting into the opinion here? Is this what you're referring to? In a sense, answer, in a sense, it seemed like he was admitting to the missing Japanese student's death. And then about nine or 10 lines down, there's the section that that your friend already referred us to. It was your feeling about the impression you got. Isn't that really it? Answer, yeah, yes. Is that, is this the opinion section?
9: Yes, exactly,
2: that is the opinion.
9: Thank you, Justice Brown.
2: Thank you very much. Any reply,
0: uh, Ms. Ainsley?
1: No, thank you.
0: I'd like to thank counsel for their submissions. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.